This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When I first got into this book writing class at Columbia, on the first day, the professor said, if you think you can be happy doing anything else, don't write a book. And I just knew already, like, I have to do this. I don't know why, but I have to do it. I don't care what else in my life suffers. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. Hi, June. How are you? I am fabulous, thank you. I am getting settled in our new home, which is in Scotland. I am more or less over jet lag. And most relieving of all, I'm finally getting back to a routine of working on my book. So that is great. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I have to say it's always fun when someone you Zoom with a lot has a new Zoom background, which you now do, having moved. So it's yes. a very novel experience. Yes, it's, it's looking very empty right now because all of our stuff is, well, I think waiting to be put on a ship rather than actually on a ship. Oh, um, wow. But it's funny because you don't need that stuff. I need to tell myself all that stuff <laughs> that I paid a fortune to send across. I don't need it. But hey, there we are. There we are. So who did you talk to this week for this episode? So... The voice we heard at the top of the show belongs to Casey Parks. She is a journalist at the Washington Post, and she has an amazing new book out called Diary of a Misfit, a Memoir and a Mystery. And I wanted to speak with her because in some ways it's a book about the struggle to write a book, but it's also a really beautiful and compelling read. I really highly recommend it, but I really wanted to talk to her about it. Yeah, it sounds really, really fascinating. And I guess kind of on that subject, what can we look forward to in the Slate Plus bit this week? That's right. Speaking of fascinating, so Slate Plus members will hear what reading the audio version taught Casey about the book she'd spent 13 years working on. Mm. And I also asked her about books that she read to help her structure or frame her own memoir. That's so interesting, and I can't wait to listen to it. And listeners, if you similarly want to listen to that fascinating extra bit of conversation, please sign up for Slate Plus. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like the Culture Gap Fest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear June's conversation with Casey Parks. Today, Casey Parks, I want to talk with you about the writing of your new book, Diary of a Misfit, a memoir and a mystery. And I'm really curious to hear how you would describe the book. It is essentially about a person in rural Louisiana who was assigned female at birth but lived as a man and 
my decades-long quest to try to find out about his life and consequently about the role my family plays in that quest. I don't know. This I'm a horrible elevator pitch person. This is probably my worst skill at my job and in <laughs> life. So <laughs> way to start off with the hard-hitting questions. It is a difficult skill. It's a, it's a difficult thing to do to summarize things very concisely. But I think it's especially hard with your book because there are a lot of things going on. So I think you did a great job of kind of mentioning a whole bunch of them because it is kind of about Roy or the search to learn more about Roy, but it also isn't. It's really, you know, the memoirs of you and your story of finding it rather than Roy. And I, I guess I'm, I'm curious how you sort of figured out what the subject of the book really is. Yeah, it's kind of a book about the making of itself. Yeah. So when I started back in my 20s in, let's say, 2008, 2009, I really thought it was just a straightforward documentary project about this guy, Roy Hudgens, who played country music on his porch. His family, was they picked cotton. He lived across the street from my grandmother. And my grandmother told me about him and when she told me about him, there were all these mysteries in his life. She said he'd been kidnapped as a little girl and raised as a boy. And then other people in town told me that he had these evil neighbors and they forced him into the nursing home. Then the nursing home forced him to live like a woman. And so I thought I had kind of a simple story for a long time. Like, I'm just going to go learn about this person. The problem with that is he didn't leave behind a ton of artifacts about his life. And He died when he was 80 in 2006, and most of the other people who knew him were around the same age or older. And so the few people who were still alive were, you know, not in great possession of their memories anymore. And so it just took a ton of digging, and sometimes that digging wasn't really that fruitful. And Mm -hmm. for years I kept trying to apply for grants to get someone to help me make this documentary. And I would often get turned down for the grants. And finally, one of the people who turned me down for the grant said, you know, I'm not going to give you any money, but I want to tell you why, because, like, I think you do have a good story. And the thing she told me is when you have a big project, be it a documentary or a book or a magazine article, your main character has to change over the course of that narrative and Mm -hmm. your main character can't change because he's dead and you don't have enough information to chart what changes he might have had in life so you need to find a different main character and at the time I said well what about my grandma because she's the one who told me about him and the woman on the grant maker said well what about you and I really resisted that I had no interest in writing about myself I I'm a journalist. I work for newspapers, and I really grew up being taught that you never include yourself, you never have opinions, you never have feelings. You're just a you know a cardboard cutout in the shape of your newspaper. <laughs> and it took me many years to get comfortable with that. And really, the only way, I, actually, I'm still not comfortable with it. But <laughs> the uh, the way that I wound up writing about myself is I went to. Columbia University to get my master's and I took this book writing class and 
I thought maybe this book writing class will help me figure out like how to outline the narrative. And I'm still thinking I'm writing this simple narrative about this other guy. And my professor kind of gently said, I don't know if you can sustain 80,000 words about this person. Like, why don't you try including yourself? Mm -hmm. And so in that class, you write chapters of the book. And so he told me to write one of them with myself in it. And at the time, I was like, okay, well, no one's going to see this, just the professor. I'll do it for him. And then after I wrote that one chapter that included myself, like, I just knew it was better than mm-hmm. everything else mm-hmm. I had made. And so, like, even though I didn't want to include myself, like, the the me who loves creating something good or reading something good yeah. could just tell. So I'm like, yeah. okay. And so from there, I kind of just started back scratch. Like, the initial version we had videotaped probably eight terabytes of footage and mm. I transcribed all of that myself. This is like pre-Trent, pre, yeah. you know, the programs that'll do it for you. And because I was transcribing all of that myself, which is a horribly laborious process, anytime there was like side action, I would just kind of paraphrase it like Casey talking to her mother for a long time. <laughs> and so... When I went back, I was like, oh, okay, well, what was Casey saying to her mother? And I, so I just kind of went back and almost re-reported by just re-watching all of this video footage to see, okay, as I was reporting about Roy, what else was going on in my life? And mm-hmm. as I looked back at it, I started to see, oh, a lot was happening. And yes, like that Grant lady was right. Like the person who's changing over these 10 years is you. Yeah. And I mean, I would say that comes across really beautifully in a way that is very subtle. And, you know, sometimes you're obviously a little hard on yourself and you're sort of saying, you know, my skills weren't good at this point. I wasn't doing very well. I wasn't a very good reporter, which, you know, I think it's clear you were exaggerating, but it's also clear that you have gotten better. Um, And that's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to show improvement, you know, as it happens over the course of time. Um, you know, you've mentioned that you had many terabytes of footage, but I'm curious kind of how you were able to access that level of awareness of like what you knew and what you were aware of on your first reporting trip to Louisiana or your third or your fifth. Like, how were you kind of tapping into that knowledge of, of where you were back then? Well, two things really helped me. One, ever since I was a little kid, I've written a journal every single day. So I had lots of journals of what I was thinking at the time, or even just detailed things of like what we ate for dinner that night. Wow! Some of my journals are really weird. They're just like grocery lists. (laughs) Um, But the other great thing for me, which did not feel great in the moment, is I took a friend with me on all of these trips who is a videographer. Their name's Aubrey Bernier-Clark, and they're a legit filmmaker like One of their films was in Sundance last year. They worked on Transparent. And after every single interview we did, Aubrey would film me and make me recap the conversations and talk about how I felt about it. And I hated those. I mean, if you look at this video footage, I hope somebody (laughs) does something with all the video we have at some point. I look so bratty because I just did not want to be a part of it. (laughs) And I just kind of looked dead in the (laughs) eyes and like annoyed and tired and nervous and you know but it it is amazing to have that contemporaneous record not only of just recapping but like 
you know, they were filming me talking about how nervous I am or like, Mm -hmm. I, you know, and because there's all this tape, I can see there's one point in the book where I'm going to confront this neighbor and I'm really scared to do it. And I can see on the tape that it takes me three minutes to get out of the car. And that's just stuff that you wouldn't write down if you're just taking notes, you know, like, so I really got lucky that we had all of that. But it's a lot of material. Um, it's, so it's great to have, big plus, but also a minus that you have to process it. You have to deal with it. And, you know, also it's really hard, I imagine, to put the crea- the necessary distance between this person in that minute and the person, however many years later, who has to make a book out of it. You know, sometimes it was really surprising to me to go back and look at those journals or even like I just tried to report about myself the way I would report about someone else. So I just took away my concept of memory and looked for actual documents to be like, okay, what were you telling people then? So I went and looked at all my G chats back in the day, because back in my 20s, I was on G chat all day long at work and just spewing opinions left and right about everything. (laughs) But my memories are kind of glossed over, you know, even going back to my childhood memories, like I, for some of the chapters are about my family in the 90s and the 80s. And Mm -hmm. I remember when I was starting those, I would think, oh, well, your childhood wasn't as bad as you thought it was. And then I pull out my fifth grade journal and my sixth grade journal. And I remember there was one journal entry that said, I'm scared to go to school today because my mom won't wake up. Like, she's passed out on the floor. I'm afraid she's going to die if I go to school. Mm. And then another one saying that my parents stayed up all night fighting because they couldn't afford my school fees. And reading those, yes, it's a lot to process, but I, it allowed me, I think, to confront myself and just to see, oh, actually, your childhood maybe was worse than you thought. Or yeah. Yeah. maybe in your 20s you were more lonely than you can remember now because... You're married now and you've lost touch with how much yearning you did or how much drinking you did. So just getting time to go back and just, I guess, in a sort of safe place, revisit how I felt at all of those times and start to make sense of why I might have felt that way. Because before I wrote this book, I was a really closed off person. And I think some of that was I kind of carried my role as a journalist into my personal life, where if you're friends with me, I'm going to ask you a million questions. And that allowed me to never have to tell people anything about myself. And as I started to write it, I realized, like, there are things in here I've never told my spouse. I've never told my best friend. So it, it was a gift to be able to just go back and, I guess, share that with people and even just share it with myself. I wonder, do you know how it was possible to do that? I mean, some of the things that you admitted to, you didn't need to reveal them. They weren't even, they were kind of extras. You know, you you shared, for example, that on an early trip, you kind of held up a mic that wasn't actually attached to a recorder. Or you you mentioned that you cheated on a girlfriend who we hadn't even met. You know, you you were kind of creating a, a version of yourself that, that was in some ways not worse necessarily, but, you know, more truth-telling than it kind of needed to be. Was there something that you did to be able to share those things? I think the main thing that I did is never think about who was going to read it. 
And I'm paying for that dearly now because <laughs> now all these people that I did not think would read it are reading it. Some of it is other people, you know, like I was a little bit tough on a few of my aunts, I think, and I did not expect they would read it. And they all immediately bought copies and read it the first day in one sitting. So I'm kind of going through that right now, different aunts, like, you know, telling me what they thought or didn't think. And I mean, they're very, they're being very generous to me, but Mm. yeah, you know, I have this thing I do when I write articles for the post or for magazines or or wherever. And that's when I find someone I'm going to write about, because I write pretty long articles. I tell the person at the beginning, look, like, Right now in your mind, you're thinking this person's going to write about me and I'm going to come off great. Like I'm going to everyone's going to think I'm awesome and I'm going to be perfect in this and that's not real. Like I'm going to write down your faults and the times you mess up. And the reason for that is that real people aren't perfect. And if you come across as perfect, no one's going to relate to you. Mm. And so my goal is that when you read this article, you'll recognize yourself. But that means recognizing yourself for all the good and bad. And so I need you to be honest with me about those things. But the end goal is that you move people with your story and they see themselves in you. Some people don't want to do that. That's Mm -hmm. fine. That's why I give the spiel at the beginning so they can know. But it makes it easier as you go through the process to say, well, remember, I need to know about the times you messed up and the things you did wrong. And it's not because I want to beat up on you. It's because I want to show how we got there. And usually people mess up for very good reasons. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's their own traumas. Maybe it's systemic racism that's caused them to have all kind of, you know, people aren't usually just bad actors. And so I just kind of went to myself with that same proposal of like, okay, Casey, um, what did you do right? And what did you do wrong? I think in addition to all the emotional family stuff and gender stuff and sexuality stuff, the book is also just a memoir of what it's like to be a young reporter. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so I think I wanted to show what it actually takes to become a better reporter. And I think there are people now who think I'm kind of like a fancy journalist. Like I've had stories in the New Yorker magazine. I've had them in the New York Times magazine. I work for the Washington Post. Like if you're a journalist dreaming of becoming something like I have accomplished Mm -hmm. aside from like huge prizes, like everything you could want to accomplish as a journalist. And I think oftentimes people call me and they're like, well, how do you get to that place? And when I was young, I didn't know how you get to that Mm -hmm. place. And I think I thought like you have to at 21 be as good as Catherine Boo is at 50 or, and I don't know that she messed up as much as I did, but I kind (laughs) of just wanted to be transparent about that of like, yeah, it might look like I have all these fancy journalism connections now, but like there was a time when I just didn't even know how to use my microphone, where I could not convince myself to get out of the car, where I got demoted twice. I guess it's sort of a kind of offering of hope of just like to become what you want to become sometimes just takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of failure and one failure doesn't direct the rest of your life and you learn from all of that stuff. I think I became a way better newspaper journalist because I messed up so many times reporting this book. Like once you have to talk yourself out of getting out of the car in your mom's <laughs> really conservative hometown, it becomes much easier to do, you know, in a more welcoming place. We'll be right back with more of June's conversation with Casey Parks. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hi, listeners. We want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to June's conversation with Casey Parks. I definitely felt that this book, you know, it's a whole series of love stories, you know, your family to the South, but also to journalism. And I wonder if the process of writing the book changed the way that you feel about or approach our profession? Yeah, so there's some there's some passages in there about what kind of journalist I was as I started reporting this book. And at the time, I worked out in the suburbs of Portland covering city council meetings. And back then, I thought, like, I'm in the lowest of low positions. And, like, I just want to get downtown and be a superstar and, like, get on the front page. And as I returned to that time to write about it now, I I really realized, like, all of that time was so important in making you the journalist that you are now. Like, I learned how to get documents in the mm-hmm. suburbs. I learned how to talk to people. I learned what I wanted to write like. I remember mm-hmm. when, at maybe my second demotion, one of the reporters that I really looked up to at the paper told me, this is great. No one's going to pay attention to what you write, so you can just try anything. And at the time, I was like, you are crazy. Like, <laughs> this is not great. I've been demoted twice. But I think she was right. I just tried all kind of weird stuff. And very few people read it. And <laughs> I could just figure out who I was. So I think I came back to that time just with a lot of gratitude and like a lot of, I guess I feel sad that young journalists don't get to have that bureau experience. Sometimes mm-hmm. you get thrown into a big beat before you're really ready. And I feel a lot more grateful now that I had a really slow roll up, that I wasn't a prodigy, that I wasn't a superstar in my 20s. I'm almost 40 now, and I just got to the paper that I've been dreaming of working at since (laughs) I was seven. And I guess I just appreciate that more of like, you know, it took you a long time to know what you're doing, and you do now, and I can come into the job I have now more confidently Mm -hmm. because of all those failures. Yeah. Well, as you said, you know, your day job, as it were, is you're a reporter at the Washington Post. And one of the challenges that working listeners often ask us for advice on is how to combine a day job with 
the creative work that they really want to do. And I think that being a reporter, it uses a lot of the same skills and brain parts as the thing that we're talking about now, which is writing a book. And I wonder if you developed any particular strategies to be able to combine that day job and get this book written and, you know, stay sane and also, you know, get all that work done. Well, I have to say it's not easy. (laughs) When I first got into this book writing class at Columbia on the first day, the professor said, look, if you think you can be happy doing anything else, don't write a book. It is going to be lonelier than you expect. It's not going to pay you as much as you expect. It's going to take a ton of work. There's going to be a lot of waiting around. You might sell 200 copies. So if you think you would rather be doing anything, like going to a concert, sitting at the bar, working out, go do those things (laughs) because this life sucks. But if you feel like there is no way I can get through my life if I don't write a book, then you have to do it. And Mm -hmm. I just knew already, like, I have to do this. I don't know why, but I have to do it. I don't care what else in my life suffers I need to make this. And, you know, for years at my day job, I spent every vacation day going to Delhi, Louisiana Mm -hmm. to report this. So I never recharged. I never just like sat on the beach getting my brain cells back together. But I knew that it was important to me and it fulfilled something in me that work didn't. And that it was in its own way recharging and made... Mm -hmm. In the times when I didn't love my work as much, it made it worth it because I had the money to go down there. I had the paid vacation to go down there. And I hoped it would someday pay off. But that part was almost easier, though, because it was so different because I was like traveling and I didn't travel at my job at that point. And it was reporting. When you get into writing and your day job and writing for your hobby or your passion, (laughs) your vocation. Yeah, it's really hard because I do think there's only so many words a brain can churn out. (laughs) I got really lucky because I won a fellowship to Columbia. It's called the Spencer Fellowship, and it's an education reporting fellowship. And essentially, they give you $83,000 to work on one magazine story for a year. And you get a little office at Columbia, and you get access to their crazy library, and you really just have to produce that one article. And my article took me three years to do, but it did eventually run in the New York Times Magazine. But I got lucky with that where I wasn't having to churn out daily stories all the time so I could spend more time on the book. But even with that, like I was freelancing for the New Yorker. I was working on this New York Times Magazine story. And really what I would do then is just severely organize my days where I know I can't think about the rise of homeschooling and black families at the same time that I think about rural Louisiana. So Mm. I would say like on Monday, I'm working on this story for the New Yorker on Tuesday. I'm doing my book on Wednesday. I'm working on the story for the New York times magazine. And I would just give myself wholly to those things. I would Mm. not allow anything else to creep into my mind. And I would just say, this is your time to just think about that. And even if you can't, do that in the weekdays. I think just finding like weekend time where you're like, okay, for these two hours, I'm not thinking about how dirty my shower is because my shower is always dirty. (laughs) I'm not thinking about who I have to call back. I'm not thinking about what I'm going to cook. Like I'm just giving myself this gift of two hours to just work on this. 
And I am super anal, so I make, like, hella to-do lists. So I'm, like, (laughs) in the early days before I was writing, I would be, like, to-do list for this weekend is I have to transcribe two interviews. And so I'm not moving until I get that done. Or when I was writing, my goal was always to write 500 words. (laughs) And some days I would write more than that, and I would be, like, okay, like, it's 11 a.m., like, you're done. Like, let's go walk around Prospect Park or... Yeah. And some days I would sit there till like 7 or 8 p.m. and and still hadn't made the 500 words. But just having those goals for me allowed me... Okay, so like I said, my book is 130,000 words. That is hard to think of. I I don't Mm -hmm. even know how to imagine that. But for me, just thinking of like, okay, you can do 500 words. Like you've written 10,000 word articles. 500 words is an AP brief. You know, it's a little more art than an AP brief, but... (laughs) It just made it manageable for me. And then I guess like probably the other super spoiled thing is that I was married when I wrote this book. I'm not married now, but my spouse was awesome and they cooked me so many great meals. I just like, I don't even know how I could have done a book without them because we lived in this minuscule Brooklyn apartment. It was 400 square feet (laughs) and they worked every day. They also had a really high-powered job, but they worked every day at our chest of drawers so that I could have the office to myself. They made dinner every night, and, like, on the nights when I couldn't get to 500 words, they would just, like, come in and put a plate of food and, like, walk back out. I know everybody can't go out there and get themselves a spouse <laughs> like that, but if you can, like, I really recommend it. it. It just made everything so much easier, and, like, even though we're not together now, we have, we're on great terms, and I'm just so grateful for the ways they made that happen. I don't think people think a lot about all the other stuff that has to get done. When you're reading a book, you're not thinking like, yeah. oh, this person picked somebody's kid up from daycare or did this. But all of those life things are really hard to do on your own. And now that I'm not married and I have to make my own dinner... It's so much more exhausting. Like, there are so many days when I get off work and I think, damn, I wish I had a wife. (laughs) That sounds misogynistic, but I mean, I can cook, but it's really nice to get off work and just have dinner ready, especially if that person's a great cook. So, (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I suspect that this book will be of extra importance to those of us who have broadly similar backgrounds to yours, people who are first generation college grads, people with parents who are sometimes, let's just say, um, difficult or different or whatever. And I know from my own experience that when you share facts about your day-to-day experience of, you know, what can be described as growing up in poverty, it can affect the way that people who didn't have that experience respond to you afterward. And how did you negotiate concerns about talking about class as it plays out in America? Because it's kind of a third rail that we don't talk about it, but at the same time, it shapes so much. So how did you kind of prepare for that? I think my background very much shapes the kind of journalist I am, and it guides me toward the stories I want to do. So I have already been pretty open before the book, just on like Twitter, explaining sometimes when I do stories of why I understand things. Mm -hmm. And I will say, though, when I was initially trying to find an agent for my book, I 
first talk to the agent that I have. Her name's Anna Stein. She's awesome. She's probably like the coolest person I've ever met. Mm -hmm. She just like has a real coolness about her. And when we first talked, I didn't have Roy's diaries. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the crux of the book. On my first trip down there, someone tells me that Roy kept a diary every day of his life and that his neighbor has them all. And so I asked the neighbor if I could see the diaries, and the neighbor said, no, stop reporting this story. So a lot of the book is there's a tension of, like, can you get these diaries or not? And I go back to this neighbor multiple times, and every time he tells me no. So I had this agent that I liked, but she told me basically, like, I think you're a good writer, but I don't think you have a book if you don't have these diaries, so I can't represent you. I'm sorry. Mm. So I kind of just went on after that, and I didn't have an agent. Probably like four or five months went by, and then I had my first story in The New Yorker. And after that, probably like six agents wrote me, and they were like, oh, we want to represent you. And I was excited because I really wanted to get my project out there. But as I talked to each of these agents, almost every one of them talked to me like, ooh, I know how to sell you, like poor lesbian. And, you know, it was kind of like a – this is going to be Glass Castle, like what a freak kind of um, vibe. And I knew yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go through life as like a specimen. And I didn't know what to do because I wanted an agent so badly. And I, but I just didn't want to feel like that. I didn't want yeah. someone to be like, "Ooh, we can sell your poverty." So I just wrote Anna back and said, "Look, I don't have the goods." But I like you more than anyone else. A lot of people want to represent me now. I feel like I got to take somebody because I, w- I got to do this book. But nobody else is you. And she just was like, all right, I'll take the long game with you. <laughs> and so she agreed to represent me. And she's like, but you've got to go back one more time if I'm going to represent you and ask again. So I did go back one more time and ask at her insistence. If you want to know what happens, you can read the book. But, exactly. Um, exactly. It's quite the payoff. Casey Parks, thank you so much. Uh, Really enjoyed the book. Recommend it to all our listeners. Thank you for joining us on Working. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. That was such a fascinating conversation, and 
almost before we dig into it all, I want to start with what we heard in the episodes open, because even from that segment, I was like, oh, wow, we have to talk about this. Because (laughs) Casey talking about knowing she had to write is so interesting, because I feel like it's relatively rare that someone's able to say that and then remain like working in that field successfully. Um, We are very lucky in that a good handful of our guests have shared similar stories. But I'm curious if you've ever felt that way about anything, and if so, what that thing was. So I also always wanted to be a writer, although, Mm -hmm. of course, I had no idea if that would work out or if that would Mm -hmm. be possible. But I have to say, I also found Casey's commitment to this particular story really inspiring. She spent 13 years, I won't say writing it, because as we heard, for the longest time, it was going to be a a documentary. Uh, It was even going to be a podcast. Like, she just knew this was a story she wanted to tell, and she just kept pursuing it. I've never shown that level of tenacity, but (laughs) there is definitely a topic that I always want to shout about, and that is, of course, dentistry. (laughs) I just want people to know how easy it is for a person's teeth to effectively exclude them from the kinds of jobs that permit what we might shorthand as a middle-class lifestyle, and how difficult it can be to quote-unquote fix them. I've written a bunch about dentistry, but I've learned that book publishers want a story that isn't the one I want to write, which I respect Mm. because publishing is a business. And also, you know, to kind of get back to something that Casey said, I'm also aware that my dental journey has what you might call a successful outcome. Mm -hmm. You know, I got access to the tens of thousands of dollars it has taken to rehabilitate my mouth. Uh, I still get gnarly infections like I've had for the last couple of weeks but you know that's not a typical outcome and I don't also I'm not sure that's the outcome that you want to kind of highlight but nevertheless (laughs) that is why I I know what it's like to have a story that you want to tell but I also yeah I I haven't stuck with it the way she has Mm mm-hmm But also with regards to your conversation with Casey, I really appreciate what she was saying about what she was taught about, like, the journalistic standard of being objective and not putting yourself in the piece. Like, I've definitely heard that from some editors before, where it's like, never use I, never, like, put yourself in there. Um, That said, I don't think it's necessarily a rule that you should think of as that concrete. Like, it's not necessarily the best approach for every topic. And I was curious if you had a take on that rule. Yeah, I think acting like you, the writer, don't exist. Like, that's crazy. If you Mm -hmm. have a direct connection or a deep knowledge of a certain thing, that feels wrong not to mention it. You know, why ask somebody on the street to give you an opinion when you have a much more informed and nuanced opinion? I've never, like, that just drives me crazy. (laughs) That said, I have no patience for writers who can only talk about themselves, mm-hmm. you know, and feel the need to put themselves in stories where they really don't belong because they think they're more interesting or important than the real subjects. But to bring it back to dentistry, <laughs> if it's a new story, it might not be relevant. But if it's a piece about how it feels to have bad teeth, I want to know that the writer has had a toothache or has experienced the judgy looks of people who haven't. So sometimes... I think having a connection is really relevant. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I don't think you should totally exclude yourself. It's just a matter of, like, turning the dial of, like, how much of you should be in there. Because, again, like, you probably aren't the subject of the piece, and you should keep that in mind. Yes. Um, (laughs) 
It was also really fascinating to hear just how much past work Casey has archived. Like she talked about going through her G chats and stuff. And I don't think I keep records in that intense a way, or I, at, least, at least I can't remember having to go back and try to find archives like that. And I yeah. wanted to know if you do and if you or if you don't and if you find that helpful. I don't. And I think I suspect I document more than many people or probably mm-hmm. most people. But it is not on the level that Casey described or the way that Alison Bechdel in her book, Are You My Mother? She showed Mm -hmm. herself effectively documenting every single conversation that she had with her mom. You know, and and it's clear from reading Diary of a Misfit that Casey used the footage that was recorded for the documentary really effectively. But what did she say? Five terabytes I know it was very clear that she watched it and rewatched it. I don't think I could have. I, you know, <laughs> she said it wasn't fun, but just sitting through it, you know, even though yeah. I journal, I keep records of the work that I do. I rarely look back at those things. And when I do it, it the cringe is so intense often <laughs> that, I, yeah, I'm, not, I'm just not sure I can handle that. Yeah, I know the feeling that you're talking about. And I guess to... <laughs> stay on the topic of slightly kind of a more personal aspect to your work. It feels pretty significant to me that Casey admits that prior to writing this book, she considered herself a very closed off person and that she thinks that this process changed her as a person. Have you ever had that kind of experience through your own work? I don't know that I have in my own writing, but Mm -hmm. I have repeatedly, weirdly maybe, seen that in the work of friends of mine who are Mm -hmm. writers. Like, I've learned really significant things about people I thought I was pretty close to from Mm -hmm. reading their books. Now, Mm. mostly just facts, you know, facts from their lives, maybe like touchy subjects that they choose not to chat about, you know, like or things that maybe would be hard to bring up. And the first time it happened, I was kind of hurt or insulted, but it has happened so many times now that I've realized it really isn't about me. Another thing that isn't about me. And, you know, again, another interesting thing about Diary of a Misfit is how Casey talks about how she realized at some point that this project that she spent so much time on is in many ways a way for her to connect with her family. Mm -hmm. You know, she works in a professional job and she lives in a different part of the country from rural Louisiana where she grew up. She has less and less in common with her family. So talking about Roy, the ostensible subject of the book, bridges that gap. And I think something similar happens for some other writers. They can only talk about certain personal things in the context of their work and I think at a certain point you just have to accept that that's, you know, it's not about you. It's mm-hmm. just about, you know, their personalities, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, and to pull back a little, I really appreciated what Casey had to say about the idea of the churn. I thought you might. <laughs> <laughs> I've spoken a little bit about my personal experience with this, with this kind of thing before, like being expected to produce at least one piece a day and stuff like that. But yeah. it really does affect the kind of work that you're able to do. And it's obviously also a mandate that's set for you by somebody else rather than yeah. something probably that you want to be doing. Um, and I wanted to ask about your experience with this kind of churn. How do you deal deal with it. And I I say this knowing that both of us quit our jobs relatively recently in order to find time for other projects. Yes, yes. Good point. 
It's funny, I have to tell you that before we started recording, Casey and I were chatting about something and I said, mm -hmm. oh, I didn't remember a certain piece that she mentioned because it was back from the era of volume when mm -hmm. I had to write a story a day. And she told me that at one point in her career, she had to write 12 pieces a day. <gasps> What? I know, 12. That is definitely excessive, but I do think that learning to write at volume is a super useful skill for a writer. Like, mm -hmm. I much prefer it when I have time to cogitate, but learning to write on demand, it provides a sort of a reassurance that can be really valuable in what's a very stressful field. So don't, I, you know, like, I'm not sure I would have chosen it for myself, but actually it taught me something that I'm really grateful for. That's a really nice way of thinking about it. And I, I, I'll try to think about it that way, too, because I mostly feel a lot of resentment towards the churn. It's, I think the problem kind of was like we were expected to produce so much work. And then some editors that I work with had been like, we really want you to write like a really long profile of these people and really long investigations. Look at these journalists who are yes. doing this. And it was like. If you look at those journalist bylines, they're writing one piece a month, one piece every two months. And we yes. absolutely don't have the kind of yeah. time or resources that they're getting. And you can't ask us to work on these projects. Yeah. And in that way, it was both unfair to us and also kind of prohibitive because we literally couldn't work on anything on a larger scope. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, moving on from that gripe that I have, um, what Casey had to say about the experience of being sold or packaged by her agent, as it were, Ugh. was also incredibly interesting because I think a lot of us who are from marginalized communities in any sense of that word have definitely experienced the same thing to some degree. How do you deal with it and how do you get around it? Karen, I'm going to do something extraordinarily pretentious <laughs> and begin my answer with a quote from a poem. Wow, I'm I know, you're ready for this? So Pat Parker wrote a poem called For the White Person Who Wants to Know How to Be My Friend. <laughs> and the first lines are, the first thing you do is to forget that I'm black. Second, you must never forget that I'm black. Mm. So for myself, to be clear, a white woman, <laughs> I do want people to know that I, you know, whatever we call it, grew up in poverty, that I'm a first generation college grad that until recently, <laughs> and I still kind of feel like it now, but anyway, mm -hmm. I was an immigrant. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's sometimes relevant because of the perspective that it lends me, but also I'm so much more than that, you know, and there mm -hmm. are parts mm -hmm. of my life where that background is not relevant at all. Because apart from anything else, I also have many privileges along with those areas of marginalization. So I'm very aware of how many times I've said, probably out of context, I grew up without an indoor toilet. And I, I kind of live in fear of someone making like a disco <laughs> remix of that. Okay, you say that, but that's the first time that I've heard you say Oh, ah, well, there we so go. So okay. it's actually maybe, very new to me. Yeah, so maybe that's just in my head. But... I also think that's a really handy shorthand that mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. gives a certain image. It's also the absolute truth. And so, you know, yeah, I think it can be useful. Yeah, I guess the important thing to take away from it is like you need to know like where to draw the boundary for yourself when yes. you're talking to other people about it and also like how to kind of advocate for yourself in that respect if they're not being cognizant of this. But yes, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a tough, tough field to navigate. Yes. This, today's theme seems to be how much of yourself you share and how much of yourself you hold back. And yeah, yeah it's a constant struggle. 
<laughs> I know all of her answers like, yeah, like you could do a lot, but also you don't have to do very much. And maybe sometimes <laughs> you it's easier to do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. We hope that you've enjoyed these very inconclusive answers. <laughs> um, if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Culture Gap Fest, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Casey Parks and to our outstanding producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Karen's conversation with film and TV editor Stacey Moon. Until then, get back to work. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.